This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today in our 313th episode, we have a bunch of news, including a new Cena Nathan from Canada and an update on the dueling dinosaurs, which is huge news. Mm-hmm. We also have Dinosaur of the Day Borealosaurus and our holiday gift guide. But before we get into all of that, we want to thank some of our patrons, and it's coming up on Thanksgiving here in the United States. It's the day after this episode will come out, and we are very thankful for our patrons. It's really the thing that we're most thankful for this year as every year, and to thank you all, we want to give a few shout-outs here, and the 10 lucky Thanksgiving patrons <laughs> that are getting shout-outs are Neil Ovenator, Morgan Eklove, Richard, Lucas and Eli, DC Cassandra, Red Sox Rex, Jackson Crawford, Lorasaurus, Wouter, and John Heck. Yes, thank you so much. To be clear, we're thankful every week, but <laughs> we are emphasizing it because in the U.S. it's the Thanksgiving holiday. And your support means so much to us, and it keeps our show going. So if you want to join our growing community of dinosaur enthusiasts, then check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash inodino. Should we talk about the dueling dinosaurs first this week, Garrett, since it's big news? I think we should start with the new dinosaur. I see. It's because you like to start with the news. Well, it also gives people something to look forward to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. True. <laughs> so our new dinosaur was published in Vertebrate Anatomy, Morphology, Paleontology by Gregory Funston. That's a mouthful. It is. But on the bright side, it's open access. So you can read all 49 pages of this article, too, if you're interested. It's all about a new Cenanathid from Canada, and Cenanathidae is a group that we talk about fairly often. I often mispronounce this. Apparently, I skip one of the syllables. I think I sometimes say like Cenanathid mm-hmm. or something like that, or Cenanathid or Cenanathid. Yeah. yeah, but Cenanathid seems to be the most popular pronunciation, so I'm going to try to say that from now on. Usually, we just talk about the larger group over Raptorosaurs, which is a lot easier to say. And it also includes more dinosaurs because Cenanathidae is a little bit difficult to nail down exactly which dinosaurs are in it, including Cenanathus, which often isn't in Cenanathidae anymore. So that's confusing. <laughs> so Oviraptorosaurs, it's usually a better group. But in this case, since they were looking specifically at three derived Cenanathids, I think we'll go with it that way. If you're not familiar with Cenanathidae, the most famous one is probably Anzu, Anzu wileyi. It's feathery with a very tall crest on its head. It, ha- it doesn't have any teeth, but it's got a 
a fairly sizable beak on it. It's heavier than an ostrich. It's not as tall, but longer, and it has some pretty fierce claws on it, probably on wings. So I think of it as a big terrifying ostrich with like a big tail sticking out of it and all sorts of claws, possibly omnivorous too. So it might not pass up a small human meal if it had the opportunity because they weighed hundreds of pounds too. Mm. So pretty terrible. Anzu Wiley is named after like a demon, partly because it's so imposing looking. But in this paper, Funston was looking at three other Cenonathids. They're all in the dinosaur park formation, which means they're from the late Campanian about 76 million years ago. And I think these were the lower dinosaur park formation, which puts them at the earlier end, if you're into that kind of thing. But they all coexisted because the dinosaur park formation already is a pretty short time period. And these all being from the same lower dinosaur park formation means they were basically all coexisting at the same time and the same place. The dinosaur park formation is pretty famous. It's in southern Alberta and basically the same formation as pieces of Montana as well. There's lots of ceratopsians there like Styracosaurus and Centrosaurus. There's also some other famous herbivores like Parasaurolophus, Ornithomimus, and Edmontonia. And then a couple of carnivores that are famous from the area are Dromaeosaurus and Gorgosaurus. Some big names, big dinosaur names. It really is, yeah. I think after Hell Creek, this is one of the most popular areas, and it's also really close to the Hell Creek, although about 10 million years before the Hell Creek. Some people have considered all three of the Cenonathids in this paper distinct. Others have lumped some of them together from time to time. So the purpose of the paper was really to look at all the Cenonathids from the dinosaur park formation and try to put together a more comprehensive comparison between the different species and whether or not they all justify their own genus and or species. So determining whether to lump or split them for good. Yes. Hopefully for good. But with science. True. It's always changing. <laughs> yeah. For good. Doesn't always last so long. In order to do this, they did what we always get excited about, which is cutting into the bones, doing some histology, really looking at them. In this case, they wanted to see if they could find lags, or more specifically, if they could find an external fundamental system, the EFS that we've talked about, which shows you that the bone was basically done growing and would indicate that they're all adults. Because if they are adults, then you're comparing apples to apples. You can rule out that maybe one of the quote-unquote species is just a juvenile of another species. And in this case, fortunately, all three of the Cenonathids were in fact adults, and they all had pretty significant differences. So it looks like all three of them are justified getting their own genus and species name. Cool. Yeah, but unfortunately, two of them were already named, so there's only one new dinosaur to talk about. Still. Yeah. The two that are already named, just to get that out of the way, are Chirostenodes, and that one was named by Gilmore in 1924. That one was basically the first Cenonathid from the dinosaur park formation. And then there was Cenonathus, which was named by Sternberg in 1940. And in this paper, Funston referred some new bones to Cenonathus, and that included some new hip bones and a claw. So I'm guessing... Cenonathus is a more complete one because that's how they came up with that group name. Actually, Chirostenodes is a little bit more complete. I'm not sure why Cenonathus got all that good press. <laughs> got the, it's the biggest one. Maybe that's why. Mm, I don't know. Could be. 
And then just to go back, if they had determined by studying all three of these specimens that they should be lumped together, then they all would have taken the name Chirostenodes because that was the first one named. Yeah, if all three of them were definitely the same. Although I think the reason maybe that they picked Cenanathus to be Cenanathidae could be because they thought that was the adult. Mm. And then so maybe someone might argue that you should go with the adult, but you're right that in general, the oldest name gets the priority. The biggest question, though, was the smallest individual, which is the third individual that hadn't been specifically named because some people thought that it might just be a juvenile. Mm -hmm. But again, did the histology, found out it was an adult, and therefore it gets its own name. The new dinosaur is named Citipes, and Citipes means fleet-footed in Latin. The material is from 1926, and it's been assigned several times, including at first in 1933 to Ornithomimus. Must have some bird-like feet then. Yes, all three of these dinosaurs and Cenonathids in general look a lot like birds. And if we went back like 30 or 40 years, there were people arguing that maybe modern birds evolved from oviraptorosaurs rather than from dromaeosaurs. So those were the kind of the two leading groups because there are a lot of things about oviraptorosaurs that look pretty modern bird-like, especially in the feet. Like they have an arctometatarsus, for example, which is a bone you find in birds. And with Citipes specifically, it was named Ornithomimus in 1933, so several years after the material was originally found, but then it quickly got reassigned because they realized it looked more like a Cenonathid than it did like an Ornithomimosaur, even though Cenonathids weren't a name yet. <laughs> they figured out that it was probably at least more similar to Chirostenodes than to Ornithomimus. But regardless of all that, the first name was Ornithomimus elegans, and what happens when you reassign in dinosaur terms, a lot of times the genus changes and the species name stays the same if you're changing the genera. So since it was Ornithomimus elegans, now it's Citipes elegans. They didn't get to change the species name. So it's a little bit like Brontosaurus that way, mm -hmm. where this, this has always been a named dinosaur, but now it has a new genus. Like Brontosaurus excelsus specifically. Versus Apatosaurus excelsus, yeah. The original paper that named it Ornithomimus elegans I don't think has been digitized, but I assume since elegans is Latin for elegant, that's where the name comes from. So I guess Parks thought it was an elegant looking foot that he found and gave it that name. Yeah. By the way, little side note, I found the Sanskrit pronunciation guide for Chidipati and that seems like it's the correct way to say it and not Sidipati or Sidipati, which is especially confusing now because we have Sidipes and Chidipati, which are both spelled C-I-T-I. -I, that is confusing. And they're close relatives because they're both <laughs> Cenonathids. So that's going to be confusing a lot of people in the upcoming years. But it makes sense that they would be pronounced differently because Chidipati is from Mongolia and it translates to funeral pyre lord, and that's from a Sanskrit terminology, whereas Sidipes comes from a Latin terminology. So it's kind of nice that they look similar, that the names both start with C-I-T-I -I because they're related and things like that, but it's super confusing when you try to say it. So keep that in mind if you want, otherwise just mispronounce one of them. I don't think anybody's really going to get too upset. I guess as long as you can spell it if you're writing it out. Yeah. 
I kept wanting to call this Cheaty Pez because I recently found out it was called Cheaty Potty, but then I found out, no, it's City. <laughs> so mm. anyway, it's just my own headache to deal with. Again, City Pez is the smallest of the three Cenanathids from Dinosaur Park Formation. It's only about one meter or three feet long and probably a little bit shorter vertically, so a little bit under a meter, a little bit under three feet, which is very small. Mm -hmm. It's a, a small dinosaur. Still ferocious, but yeah, small. The largest of the three is probably Cenanathus. That one's about two and a half meters or eight feet long and about 1.7 meters or five and a half feet tall. So basically face to face with a human. It's almost as big as Anzu would have weighed significantly more than your average adult human. But fortunately for us, Anzu and potentially Cenanathus might have been a little bit more on the herbivorous side of the omnivore spectrum from our best guesses today based on skull shape. Hmm. So they only would have gone after humans if it was easy. Yeah, probably. Maybe just babies. Mm. <laughs> and then Kyrostenodes is basically in between the two in size. I really like this one quote from the paper. Funston said, quote, Cenanathids occupied a much broader range of body sizes than oviraptorids, possibly as a result of dispersal to North America during an interval of extensive ecosystem restructuring, end quote. Interesting. Yeah, I find that really fascinating because we think that Cenanathids all came from Asia and then I guess they came over a land bridge <laughs> sort of thing, just like humans did 70 million years later. And when they arrived in North America, I guess the ecosystems were changing a lot and they took advantage of it, just like dinosaurs did at that Triassic-Jurassic boundary and mammals did at the end of the Cretaceous. That's why dinosaurs were so successful. Yeah, exactly. And in case you're wondering what makes city pez different the holotype is just a partial tarso metatarsus which i mentioned earlier is fused tarsal and metatarsal foot bones and it's something you see in modern birds it's also believed to maybe make them faster runners because when you stiffen up that leg and kind of increase the leverage on the bones that can help with speed potentially but in addition to that one bone, they also referred several bones, not the official holotype, but there are other bones that they think also belong to Cidipes. And it includes more foot bones, leg bones, a jaw, and part of the hips, as well as a sacral vertebra. So a decent showing of scattered bones from around the body. But unfortunately, there's no head or at least the top of the head above the jaw, so we can't see if there's a crest or anything. And there's no forelimb bones. And some of the Cenanathids we know mostly from their hands, so it makes it a little bit tricky to compare Cidipes to some of the other dinosaurs. Phylogenetically, Cidipes came out in a group with Elmosaurus, and Elmosaurus is from Mongolia. So again, we're seeing that distribution from Mongolia over to North America, which is funny because all three of these coexisted in the same time and place, and they're not that close to each other. <laughs> they're, yeah. They're more closely related to different ones back in Asia. The three dinosaurs, they point out, have different jaws and feet, and Cidipes has that fused foot bone the other two don't have, which might have made it a faster runner. But the jaws might also indicate that they fill different ecological niches, and that would be better than trying to compete directly if they were all eating slightly different things or maybe chasing down different types of prey. Kyrostenodes jaws have some elements in common with modern raptors, meaning the predatory birds, which may indicate 
that it was a carnivore or an omnivore leaning more towards the carnivore end of the spectrum. And again, that's that medium-sized one. But we're still pretty unsure about that because we don't have any gut contents or anything really good to go by. Maybe one day. Yeah. If I had to guess, I would say that Citipez is also probably more on that carnivore end of the spectrum because if it has evolutionary benefits to running faster, then maybe it's going after smaller prey. Also, in general with dinosaurs, the smaller ones tend to be more carnivorous than the bigger ones. But that, I mean, now that I said that, is I'm sure there's a hundred exceptions to that rule. So really we have to go out and find some gut contents or something before we can figure out much about this group's behavior. And one more fun quote. Funston said, Cenonathids, quote, were minor but persistent members of the dinosaur park formation fauna, end quote. Persistent, huh? <laughs> Basically, you find a couple bones of them all over the place, but you don't ever really find a lot of them anywhere. So they're everywhere, but there's never very much of them when you find them. So we know that they were all over the place but we just don't know that much about them because we just find like a toe bone here, a, a vertebra there. Whereas with other dinosaurs, you find like a complete skeleton or 10 complete skeletons. So it might be because they were just living in environments that didn't fossilize as well. Maybe they lived like up in a mountain. We've talked about that before. Like if there were dinosaurs that spent most of their time uphill from things and like away from streams and away from places they could get easily buried on like harder terrain, we would very rarely see them get fossilized. So for one reason or another, we don't have many fossils of these. And that's the only way we're really going to straighten this out. Or they all lived nice long lives and they weren't suddenly buried by some <laughs> catastrophic event. <laughs> they were good at avoiding getting buried. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's true. I was really surprised that all of these individuals, he found adults of all three species, because a lot of times we talk about like recently at SVP, some of the talks, they said they couldn't find a single adult. They were all juveniles in mm -hmm. some of these species. But in this case, they're all adults. It's pretty cool. But being more bird-like in that way, they might have grown faster and then stopped like birds do today. Whereas traditional archosaur, crocodilian style, you just kind of slowly grow indefinitely. So just going back to that hashtag need more fossils. Yep. But you know, there are two new 100% complete specimens out there, also known as the dueling dinosaurs. Oh. Mm -hmm. So maybe you saw these news items going around because it was very popular this week, but the dueling dinosaurs are going on display at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. That is awesome. Yeah. So these dinosaurs, it's fossils of T-Rex or possibly a Nanotyrannus. They're going to learn more as they prepare it along with a Triceratops horridus, but that species also needs to be confirmed. These two dinosaurs were possibly locked in battle when they died. That's why they're known as the dueling dinosaurs. Yeah, they're buried together. It's like a scaled up version of what are known as the fighting dinosaurs, which are a Velociraptor and a Protoceratops fighting, and then they got buried in Mongolia. Yes. In the case of the dueling dinosaurs, though, we don't actually know if they were fighting or if they just happened to die together because they're mm. still encased in the sediment. Gotcha. So these fossils cost $6 million. Oof. And the nonprofit Friends of the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences got enough money through private donations, and then they bought and donated the specimens to the museum. Those are some friends. Give you $6 million. 
Yes, well, that's just the name of the nonprofit, but yes. <laughs> so they're expecting to find 100% of the bones of both dinosaurs in the sediment block, which is really exciting because that would make the theropod, the T-Rex or Nanotyrannus, depending on what they find, the most complete one in the world. Wow. And this theropod is about nine feet tall, and they know it's a teenager. It's curled in a ball with its head upside down and its teeth toward the ceiling. For the Triceratops, there are scaly skin impressions on the frill that have a grid-like pattern. And that's going to tell us a lot more about what a Triceratops frill looks like. That sounds like that rugose texture we were talking about last week with the Cetacosaurus relative mm-hmm. and how it might have been covered in keratin. Yeah, yeah. So some of the paleo art I'm already seeing around this is really cool. And the fossils themselves are black, like Black Beauty in the Royal Tyrol Museum. The T-Rex specimen. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that one's really cool. So they're really pretty. I'm really happy that a public museum got a hold of these and they didn't just end up in some private collection somewhere like Stan did recently. Yes. And I'll get into the history in a little bit. But first, I just want to talk about how, again, we're not sure if the dinosaurs are fighting, but there is a T-Rex tooth in the Triceratops skeleton and there's cracks in the T-Rex skull. Oh, jeez. But the sediment around the bones also cracked and that could be from the Triceratops kicking or from something else. Yeah, there. I mean, finding a complete skeleton that doesn't have cracks in it somewhere would be more remarkable than finding one like this that does have cracks. Yes. Paleontologists will tell you they're always gluing fossils back together. So, yeah, that's not exactly the the greatest evidence of a battle. Yeah. So some possible scenarios include that the Triceratops was dead and the T-Rex or Therapop was fighting a different dinosaur. Or maybe there's a pack of T-Rex that found the Triceratops already dead and then they killed the weakest one to get more (laughs) share of the food. Oh, yeah. Like those feeding frenzy hypotheses. Yeah. Yeah. It just got caught up in the prey side of things. Yes, and a lot of teeth have been found where the fossils were found. But either way, both of these dinosaurs were buried at the same time. And there's signs of soft tissue preservation. Ooh. So there's a lot of cool stuff that's going to be coming out of this. Yeah, we've we've been talking about this fossil for a long time. It's so cool that it's now fully in scientific land where we'll get lots of information about it for sure. Mm-hmm. So diving into the background on these fossils... The dueling dinosaurs, we've talked about it a lot because they've been part of a really long legal dispute. Clayton Phipps and his cousin and friend found the fossils back in 2006 in the Hell Creek Formation, and first they came across a large ceratopsian bone and then a theropod claw. And apparently when they first saw whatever fossil was sticking out of the ground, they weren't that excited about it, but they were somehow drawn to it and then found out it was a really exciting find. Yeah, I can imagine. And they that's basically the ideal thing. You see like a toe bone sticking out and then you dig down and find the rest of the animal. Yeah. Yeah, it's very rare you find the rest of the animal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in 2013, the fossils went to auction. They were appraised between 7 and $9 million, but I think they only got an offer for $5.5 so they didn't sell them. Then there was the legal battle over who owned the land where the fossils were found. There were the surface rights, which belonged to the Murrays. You might remember this when we talked about it through over several episodes. Or the mineral rights, which belonged to the Severson brothers. And we did talk about the outcome of the case in episode 291. That's when we said that the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit found that the dueling dinosaur fossils belonged to the Murrays, the owners of the surface estate. And that the owners of the mineral rights, the Severson brothers, did not have a claim to them. So this came after the ruling from the Montana Supreme Court that fossils are not considered to be minerals. 
Yeah, that basically all boiled down to a definition of minerals. And by their perspective, the court's perspective, a mineral is something that has value because it's a mineral. And these things weren't valuable because they're minerals, because they're very common minerals. They're valuable because of the the shape that they are. So they didn't fall into the the definite the legal definition of the mineral rights mm-hmm. as it was written. But I'm pretty sure going forward, people are just gonna add fossils <laughs> when they're buying mineral rights from land. Probably. <laughs> so during all this time, the museum in North Carolina already owned the dueling dinosaurs. Really? Yes. And I think we'd read about that or there were rumors like, oh, some public museum is interested in it. But they had to wait years while this legal battle played out without spilling that they had these fossils. So they they owned them, but they didn't know who they were going to pay. Exactly. In other yeah. Because the lawsuits didn't affect the fact that they owned it. It just affected who they would pay. Weird. So they, they weren't going to take collection of them until they paid for them, but they had to wait to pay the right person before they could get them. They couldn't just take it and start working on it and figure out who to pay later. Yes, that's how it at least that's how it sounded to me when I was reading up on all this. I mean, I think that's usually how it goes in like in legal battles when something's being fought over. It sits in like a warehouse somewhere where neither side has access to it until they decide who gets it. Mm-hmm. What's really cool about it, though, is that the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences is building a new dino lab. It's part of this $14 million project, and visitors are going to be able to watch paleontologists prepare and study the dueling dinos. That's so awesome. Yeah. And you can ask when you visit, you can ask paleontologists questions as they work. They're also going to have live streams to show the research. And there's going to be a public lab next door where people can try using the tools and see what it's like to prepare (laughs) a fossil. That reminds me a lot of when Sue was getting prepared in Disney World and they set up a big thing like that so everybody could kind of get involved with the preparation and see exactly all the details. I forgot about that. Yeah. So Dino Lab will open in 2022. They still need to raise some money to build the lab. They've gotten $2 million from the state and Wake County and about a million dollars from tourism tax on hotel stays. And the Bank of America Foundation donated a million dollars towards the Cretaceous Creatures Project. And that's where high school students around the world can go to the dig site where the fossils were originally found to learn more about the context and the environment in Hell Creek where the dueling dinosaurs were. And once the fossils are prepared, they're going to be CT scanned. That is awesome. That's great that they raised so much money to go study the original environment where they came from, because we talked a little bit before about how these fossils, sometimes when they're excavated by non-scientists, we learn a little bit less about where they came out of, what the age of the rock is, how exactly they were situated and things like that. But if you have a bunch of scientists regularly going out there and can be part of that process, especially younger people learning about it at the same time. That's that's really cool. Yeah. So the dueling dinosaurs were controversial because they were dug up by private collectors. And Jack Horner even years ago said that, you know, they have no value to science, basically because of that. He's since taken it back. So what happened was Lindsay Zan on her team, they're working on the fossils and they spent a lot of time at the Hill Creek Formation already. They met with Clayton Phipps who found it. They studied where these fossils were buried. So far, they say they found it looks like it died in an ancient river environment. And they're saying, yes, these fossils are still valuable, even though they were dug up by private collectors, because they're able to still track down, you know, the original dig site and look at the context and everything. 
Yeah, that's really the most important piece of it. If you can find the exact rock that it came out of, especially in this case where they're not even excavated all the way, so you can see exactly how they're situated, because I assume this is just in one or two massive jackets, then you're going to be able to get a lot of that context during the fossil prep. And then if you can see where they're from, you can get the sedimentation data and figure out the exact age of it too. Mm -hmm. And we'll get the microfossils, which is what the students will be doing. The fossils themselves weigh 15 tons. Oh, man. Mm -hmm. So there's a website now, duelingdinosaurs.org, that gives more information on the discovery and the museum's plans. And it's got some fun interactive elements that teach you what we currently know about the fossils and what scientists hope to discover. Nice. I hope when they get it set up and they start preparing it, that they're doing live streams and things. So people of us that are on the opposite side of the country or in other countries get to see some of this preparation work being done too. Mm -hmm. With $14 million, I feel like you could throw a couple hundred dollar webcams in the mix. Oh yeah, it <laughs> sounds like that's what the part of the plan is. That is so awesome. It really does take a lot of the sting out for me of losing Stan to a private collection. I'm amazed that it went for so cheap though. $6 million versus, that's less than a fifth of what Stan the T-Rex cost. Yes, and the reason for that is because Stan was already prepared. Oh, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's actually really interesting when you look at it that way, because to a private collector, it's more valuable if it's already prepared. But to a museum, it's less valuable <laughs> if it's already prepared because you're like, where's all the science? You prepared away all the science information, mm -hmm. whereas the private collectors don't want that. They want a nice, pretty thing that they could set up in their house. Well, in that case, it worked out then because Stan was prepared and able to be studied mm -hmm. while being prepared. So. Yeah, and we made lots of copies of it and everything. Mm -hmm. But it would be nice if Stan ended up somewhere public sooner or later. Yeah. But the dueling dinos, I'm I'm really pumped. Oh, yeah, I'm really excited to see what they learn. And I've got to say, the idea that it's a nanotyrannus, I think is crazy. It's a T-Rex. <laughs> <laughs> There's no way that people should be assuming it's a nanotyrannus. Like that, that's a distant second alternative hypothesis yeah. of what it is. Well, I don't think they're making any assumptions yet. They're just saying, here are some possibilities. It makes it a little bit more exciting when you're like, maybe it's a nanotyrannus, but it's not a nano. Nobody thinks nanotyrannus is a thing anymore. There's like three people. <laughs> it's a T-Rex. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College, where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig, and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public, and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. Mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. 
So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So you can't buy the dueling dinosaurs as a holiday gift, but you're in luck because (laughs) now we're going to talk about our 2020 holiday gift guide. (laughs) These things are going to sound a lot less exciting than the dueling dinosaurs, but... No one should be buying those anyway, except for a museum. The dueling dinosaurs. Yeah. Gifts, though. You can buy those anytime. doesn't even have to be for the holidays. True. So we're going to talk about our gift guide. If you want links to all of the things we're going to be talking about, you can find them on our website at bit.ly slash IKD dash gift guide. Or if you just go to inodino.com, I think it's pinned, right? Yeah. At the moment. At the top, yeah. It's called Ultimate Gift Guide or something like that for dinosaur enthusiasts. And we'll list all the prices. They'll all be in U.S. dollars. So starting off on our gift guide are holiday cards. And this is just a cute thing we found on Etsy. It's a pack of six dinosaur holiday cards. Something to send to your friends and family. Good way to connect with people, especially this year. So they're like one dinosaur per card? Is that what goes on? Yeah. So there's, for example, a sauropod with a holiday scarf wrapped around its neck. Oh, I see. Yeah. So they're seriously like holiday dinosaurs, not just dinosaur holiday cards. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Next up is a really cute sauropod phone holder. And I actually got this as a gift years ago, and I use it almost every night. You can prop up your phone while you're in bed or on your desk. It's really good if you want to watch videos or play games. And it's just this really small green sauropod shape. Really cute. Yeah. As long as you don't have too big of a phone. Some of the bigger phones might struggle under (laughs) with this little sauropod trying to hold it up. True. (laughs) And I don't think it works in portrait. It's like a landscape only situation. Yes. Still handy. Yeah. You've been, I think you've been using it for almost a decade. Yeah. At least multiple years. I've lost track. Next, we found some dinosaur bottle openers. There's a couple of options. The first is a cast iron T-Rex bottle opener. Wowza. It looks really fun. There's a lot of positive reviews, but it seems, according to the reviews, to be a little more decorative than functional. And, you know, great for opening up your sodas, your beers, all kinds of things. And next, the second option is the Jurassic World Raptor Claw. Well, Raptor Claw Jurassic World bottle opener. Is it actually officially Jurassic World licensed? Yes, it is. Wow. They have a few things here. The product description is Dynamite Party. Don't let your parties go extinct. (laughs) (laughs) Kind of cheesy. But the picture shows a person holding a claw. You know, you can use it to open your bottles, but 
it might also just be fun to play with and pretend you're a velociraptor. So I'm assuming the opener part is like the muscle attachment knob at the base of the claw? Yes, because actually the picture that they have of the person holding it, they're holding it as if they're pretending they have the claw, not as if they were going to actually open something. Hmm. So yeah, pretty fun. Next up are some nightlights we found. They're pretty fun looking. They're like these 3D kind of nightlights. They've got T-Rex. They've got options for Triceratops, Velociraptor, Carnotaurus. To me, they're very Tron looking, at least in the pictures. So they have like little strips of light on them, like in Tron? Yeah, I think it's more the colors that make me think of Tron, but they look, I guess they're wireframe. And according to the description, they've got a dimmer and they have different setting options as well and they can make for a really fun gift. Nightlights have gotten a lot fancier than when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. They're just a bulb in front of a boring piece of plastic. Oh, I guess you didn't like your nightlights. <laughs> I feel like they broke a lot somehow mm-hmm. because they had like an exposed bulb just plugged into a socket basically. Gotta slap some dinosaurs on them. Make them more exciting. So next is a 48-piece they call it Dinosaur Paradise Building Block Set. It says it's compatible with all major brands. So in the review specifically, it's not Duplo, but apparently it fits with Duplo blocks. And according to reviews, they're really sturdy. Yeah, looking at them, they look a lot like Duplos. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I know there are some official Duplo dinosaur sets that I was looking at a couple years ago, and they were super expensive because they must have gotten discontinued. So they're like collector's items. So... I guess these are a good alternative if you don't want to spend hundreds of dollars on collector's items Yeah, for a kid to, like, drool on. Yeah. (laughs) They're really colorful and cute dinosaurs, too, and they come with some big carrots for the herbivores to eat. Oh, yeah, that makes sense because we all know dinosaurs ate carrots. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in building block land, yeah. Why not? (laughs) Then there's the more intricate Lego sets. So Lego's... I mean, Lego's got a bunch of these, but a couple ones that we found were the Lego Jurassic World Triceratops Rampage set, which has 447 <laughs> pieces. Wow. Mm-hmm. And that one, you've got Owen Grady, you've got your Triceratops, and you've got the Egg Spitter ride, which I don't remember seeing that ride, but it must be in the Jurassic World park. Oh, it looks kind of like the teacup ride mm-hmm. where you spin around until you're nauseous. Yeah. But most importantly, it includes a Triceratops. Yes. And you can have it rampage through some (laughs) gates. (laughs) Lego's also got the Mighty Dinosaurs Build-It-Yourself Dinosaur set. And there's 174 pieces in this one. And you can use them to build a T-Rex, a Triceratops, and not a dinosaur, but still cool, Pterodactyl. In keeping with the Jurassic World theme, there's the Jurassic World Action Attack Carnotaurus. And I know this one came out a couple years ago, but it still looks really cool. It's got chomping action, you can move the tail, and it has a lot of very positive reviews. People are really happy to play with this Carnotaurus. <laughs> oh yeah, that is very popular. Is this one that, oh, it's not a battle damage one. They're the battle damage ones where like you can take a flap of flesh off of the side of it like it got injured. Oh. But this one's on the offensive, I guess. It doesn't lose pieces, it just yeah. chomps. It strikes and it chomps. <laughs> It reminds me of the Buzz Lightyear, like, karate chop action. Mm, mm-hmm. Strike and chop action. And the laser light, yeah. <laughs> On the softer side, there's an ankylosaurus plush. That's oh, stuffed yeah? animal. Yeah. 
It looks really cuddly. Is this going to be in my holiday gift pile? I guess it could be. <laughs> Don't want to ruin any surprises. Well, maybe you shouldn't have put it in the holiday gift guide then. <laughs> <laughs> so it's got a lot of spikes and armor, but of course it's all soft. How come the title of it says Gifts for Kids? I take umbrage with this. That's how a lot of things with dinosaurs are. They say it's for kids, but I say these could all apply to adults as well. Fooey. Ankylosaurs are not the best for cuddling with, though, just looking at the spikes on this thing. Oh, but they look like soft spikes. They made it even spikier than ankylosaurus. They could have left it just a little bumpy and it would be more cuddly and scientifically accurate. (laughs) I guess so. They say it's an armored companion ready to take on any adventure. The only adventure I want to take on with my plush is napping. (laughs) Well, it looks very cuddly and easy to nap with. Okay, good. Even with the extra spikes. I expect to see it in my stocking. Mm, We'll see. We also found a few more crafting kind of dinosaur gifts. So there's a dinosaur painting kit, and that's where it comes with dinosaur models and paint. And the idea is that you get to design your dinosaurs. Choose your own coloration pattern. Exactly. So you get six dinosaurs, two of each. It's two, two sauropods. Looks like a potosaurus to me. Two T-Rex, two ankylosaurs. And I like in the picture how they show they painted different patterns on them. So there's like spots on the sauropod and actually counter shading on the ankylosaurus. Although the counter shading is all upside down. They gave it like dark boots and then a light back, which is the opposite of countershading. That's how you countershade if you're a shark and you're trying to camouflage from something looking up from below at you, which maybe is what maybe Ankylosaurus wants that because it's trying to camouflage from the plants it's going to eat. But (laughs) (laughs) maybe (laughs) in most situations, the countershading is all wrong. All right. So if you get your own dinosaur painting kit, make sure you countershade the right way or else Garrett will judge you. I will. There's also a really cool pillowcase. It's like a black and white drawing of dinosaurs, like a dinosaur scene. There's a volcano that's erupting and a bunch of other stuff going on. And then it comes with markers, felt tip fabric markers that you can use to color in your dinosaur scene. That is a crazy, it's almost like Where's Waldo level of amount of stuff going on Mm -hmm. on it. So color in your own dinosaur Where's Waldo pillowcase, basically. Yeah. yeah. You could put a little Waldo in there, actually. Yeah, you definitely Because there could. are humans in it for some reason. Are there? Oh, yeah, yeah there are. Or you could draw some because there's a little bit of white space around. Yeah, so some fun things to do that are dinosaur related. We also found a Stegosaurus ceramic planter for succulents. And especially this year, I've been hearing more about people getting into plants, having plants around the house. This planter can also hold flowers and cactus, and it also has a lot of good reviews. And the Stegosaurus comes in blue. There's also a Triceratops version that comes in white. If you want to curl up with a hot drink, some hot cocoa or tea or something, you can get a 3D dinosaur ceramic mug. There's actually a bunch of animals you can get. But the one I like the best is the sauropod because the neck is the handle. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really cute. Yeah, and a good idea. We have mugs like this, but not with any sauropods. We have it with Triceratops and Stegosaurus and the necks are the handles. 
So the way this Brachiosaurus looks with the neck handle seems a lot easier to use. I think we have a theropod one too, like a T-Rex or a we raptor do. of sorts. But yeah, it's just like their head and dinosaur heads, since they kind of taper off, don't make for a great handle. It's like trying to hold on to like a cone sticking out of the side of the mug. Mm -hmm. So they're pretty much for decoration in our house. But this one looks like you can actually use it since the neck curls all the way back around to the mug mm -hmm. in a sort of semi-broken neck posture. Oh, yeah. Well, it's a broken <laughs> neck posture, but still. It's functional. Yeah. Functional for our purposes. Not so much for the dinosaurs. Yeah. <laughs> Next, there's a, it's called a Camp Director Cross Body Bag. So it's a bag with a nice long strap. And it's got this really fun T-Rex print that looks to me kind of like the chrome T-Rex. Is it, would you consider this a purse or is it not a purse? Yeah, I might consider it a purse, but I could see you using it in non-purse-like situations. <laughs> like if you were directing a camp, for example. <laughs> Such a weird name. You're at, you're at a, a Jurassic camp, maybe? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but it looks like a, a pretty solid purse. Yeah, it looks like a good size. There's pictures of all kinds of stuff that you can put in it. You know, typical phone, wallet, and other things you might need. There is way more dinosaur gear for women and girls these days than there used to be. Yeah, I like it. Yeah, it's nice. Keep it coming. This next one's pretty comfortable. It's animal paw slippers. It says for kids and adults. And it's basically really cozy slippers. They're technically not necessarily dinosaurs, but they could look dinosaur-like. I don't know what else they would be. They have three toes and big claws. Yeah. So they, I think they're meant to be dinosaurs. Probably. Although they've got like weird blue-green fuzz, so it reminds me of Monsters, Inc. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh, there are different colors, though. Yeah, but the main picture is green and blue. There is one that's a dark green, and they describe that color as a dinosaur. So I guess if you want the traditional dinosaur colorings, you can get that. Mm -hmm. Or you could just get the pink ones and say, I'm a pink fluffy T-Rex, because we don't know that that wasn't T-Rex's color. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that'd be fun to get your pink fluffy T-Rex slippers and your Velociraptor bottle opener claw. You can have all sorts of fun. Oh, and also add to it your onesie, your soft onesie. This is also for adults, they have animal dinosaur onesies. Yeah, I've definitely seen people wear these over the years. Mm-hmm. And they come in green, brown, and pink. So you have lots of options there. Do they have tails? Yes. Oh. They do have tails. Every single picture of a person wearing this, they're doing the exact same roaring stance. <laughs> With like T-Rex arms too. Mm-hmm. It's probably because when you wear the hood, it's like you got the T-Rex head and then the the teeth are over your forehead. I wonder if this would fit me. It says the large is worn by a six foot person and the medium is worn by a five foot five woman. So maybe extra large. I tend to have the problem since I'm tall and skinny that anything that is tall enough for me tends to turn into a tent around me. But yeah, <laughs> <laughs> there's probably a size that would fit you. Yeah. And this also has a lot of really good reviews. People say it's comfortable and fun to wear. The only tricky thing is those tails. Sometimes those can get uncomfortable depending on how you're sitting True. or leg. Speaking of fun to wear, I had to throw this in. The Jurassic World Inflatable T-Rex and Velociraptor costumes. Officially licensed. We have both. <laughs> 
you might have seen them in our TikTok videos. <laughs> I will say the T-Rex one is easier to move around in, but they're both fun. The T-Rex one also zips up in the front, which makes it a lot easier to get into and out of. Whereas whenever Sabrina gets into the Velociraptor one, it's like helping someone get into a dress with an awkward zipper because mm -hmm. it's in the back and the arms on the Velociraptor have hands attached to them. So you couldn't even really reach around to the back because you got these big dinosaur hands over your hands. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas with the T-Rex, it's like putting on gloves afterwards. Yeah. Two-fingered gloves. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. I do think the T-Rex one is still the best, but we've, we haven't tried the Triceratops one yet. We got to get that one of these days. <laughs> yeah, we probably will. I really doubt I would fit in the Triceratops one. That one looks like it's even shorter. You never know. It just depends because when I put on the T-Rex costume, I can fit through our doors a lot easier than when you put on the T-Rex costume. Yeah. Well, the T-Rex one, at least I can still kind of see out of it. I'm still a little bit too tall for it. But the Velociraptor one is definitely not as tall people friendly mm. and Judging by the pictures, I think the Triceratops one would be even worse, but I'm not sure. There's only one way to find <laughs> We're out. We're going to have to buy it, yeah. <laughs> Maybe it'll be on next year's gift guide. Maybe. Now I want to talk about some honorable mentions in our gift guide, and that includes our Inodino merch store, which you probably already know. We, you can buy t-shirts, hoodies, masks, mugs, and a lot more things, and we have four different designs that feature Allosaurus, Spinosaurus, Parasaurolophus, and Gorgosaurus. And I will say, I really like our t-shirts. They're pretty comfortable and soft. Yeah. Yeah, all the stuff on our, our merch, the stuff they make is really nice. Mm -hmm. I also want to mention our creative journal, Keep Your Dinosaurs Here. It's got 100 prompts to get you writing and sketching, and there's facts about dinosaurs. It's been used in classrooms. We've also heard that adults have enjoyed writing in it and using it, so... I'd say it's good for all ages <laughs> and it's very activity focused. Yeah, I really like it. It's a solid creative journal and all dinosaur themed. So if you're into creative journals and you're listening to this podcast, it's probably a good fit for you. Yeah. <laughs> also, if you have an Amazon ALEXA device and you maybe you're in a group and you want to listen to more dinosaur things, we have a dinosaur of the day skill so you can hear all those segments from our show. It's just a fun little activity you can do. Yeah. Good job spelling it so you're not setting off everybody's virtual assistants. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and last for the honorable mentions is the Paleo Art Shop Index. And this is a Google sheet that a number of paleo artists have put together. And it's a place where you can go to see links to all their sites where they sell prints and sculpts and other merchandise. And it's a public list, so there's a lot of different options there. Most of the shops are on Etsy. There's other places, and there's a wide range of paleo art. There are up to over 50 artists that are on this list as of now, and I think more people have been adding to it steadily. Wow. That's a lot of paleo art to mm -hmm. choose from. <laughs> Definitely. So that's our 2020 guide. Again, if you want to see any pictures of the gift ideas and get direct links for where to purchase, then go to our website. It's one of the main posts on our homepage, or you can go to bit.ly slash IKD dash gift guide. 
Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. And now on to our dinosaur of the day, Borealosaurus, which was a request from Tyrant King via our Patreon and Discord. So thanks. Borealosaurus was a titanosaur sauropod that lived in the late Cretaceous in what is now China in the Sunjiawan Formation in Liaoning Province. It was herbivorous and estimated to be about 39 feet or 12 meters long and weigh 10 tons. That's pretty small. Mm -hmm. Only fragmentary remains have been found. The holotype is an apisthocelus mid-distal caudal vertebrae, centra with convex articulation at the front and concave at the back. Yeah, that's what apisthocelus means. That concave-convex combination? Yes. And referred specimens include a peg-like tooth crown, a middle caudal, and a mostly complete robust humerus. But it's not clear if these fossils are part of the holotype or even if they go with each other. The type species is Borealosaurus wymani, and it was described and named in 2004 by Hai Lu Yo and others. The genus name means North Wind Lizard, and that name refers to the fact that it was found in northern China. The species name is in honor of paleontologist Carl Wyman, who named the first Chinese dinosaur Euhelopus in 1929. At first it was named Helpus, but that name was in use, so he renamed it to Euhelopus. However, in the same paper, he also named Tanius. Anyway, the fossils of Borealosaurus were collected between 1999 and 2002 near Miao Village. Titanosaurs usually have procelus caudals, which is the opposite of apistocelus. But the titanosaur apistocelicadia, which was named in 1977, also had apistocelus vertebrae, so Borealosaurus may have been closely related. Who'd have thunk that Opisthocelacadia had Opisthocelus vertebrae? <laughs> yes, shocker. <laughs> Other sauropods have been found to have some degree of this characteristic as well. Fuqui Titan, Nemectosaurus, Rinconsaurus, and Sonidosaurus. To name a few. Mm -hmm. However, Borealosaurus probably needs to be studied more since some scientists don't think it was a titanosaur and others think it was a basal titanosaur. So another case of we need more fossils to know. Other dinosaurs that lived around the same time and place as Borealosaurus included ankylosaurs like Crichtonpelta and iguanodonts like Schwangmiaosaurus. And our fun fact of the day is that evolution can be inadvertently caused by weather events. Interesting. Yes. I have evidence to back this up, but we did mention last week that sometimes animals get washed out to sea on rafts, and I don't mean rafts that they built, <laughs> but rafts that are just sort of 
conglomerations of debris that get stuck together or it could just be a single piece like say a big tree trunk or something getting washed out to sea and if there's a lizard or something on it it can end up on some other island and then if there's a few of them on that island they can reproduce and start their own little side branch of reptilians and then before you know it they're their own little species Hmm. going on in isolation but this specific story that i'm going to tell you is from the book life through the ages 2 which is a sponsor of the show and it's about nene so nene is sometimes called the hawaii goose which gives you a little bit of an idea about what it's related to it looks a lot like the canada goose is it as mean i don't think so Mm. (laughs) because it's on an island and island things are nicer (laughs) but if you're wondering canada goose has the scientific name of bronta canadensis the hawaii goose is from the same genus bronta and the species name i think is pronounced sandvicensis which apparently is because the hawaiian islands used to be called the sandwich islands did not know that me either bronta is basically the goose group so it's like the the Hawaii goose and the Canada goose, or the sandwich goose, if you prefer. (laughs) The reason I say weather may have caused this new species is because it's believed that Canada geese were flying in their regular migration path, and they got redirected to Hawaii by storms. Hmm. So they got blown way off course all the way over to Hawaii, or maybe they ended up far enough out in the ocean that they got confused or something, and they ended up finding this island to land on. And then they ended up establishing a new colony there. And over the course of a million or so years, they evolved into a new species. A nicer one. I I think so. So Nene is only about half the size by weight of a Canada goose. It's a quote unquote medium sized goose at about five pounds. They don't fly very much. They're not very capable flyers. And that kind of makes sense because outside of the Hawaiian Islands, there isn't really anywhere they could possibly fly the Hawaiian Islands are very remote. They got to their destination accidentally, and it was paradise, so they stayed. Yep. There used to be a flightless variant called Nene Nui, which evolved on Maui. So mm. even within the Hawaiian Islands, there was a subpopulation that evolved, and it was evolving, I should say, flightlessness, because when it went extinct, when humans arrived about a thousand years ago, Some of them still could fly, but you could actually see the process of them losing their ability to fly through the paleontology record. So you can see the flightlessness happening on like in real fossils. That's pretty cool. Yeah, it's amazing. One source I read said it's the only example we have of like a series of clearly one species losing the ability to fly. One reason that it might be that some of them could fly and some couldn't is there might have been some Nene Nui birds that could that were still mating with the original Nene or, you know, the capable of flying Nene. And so, you know, if they could have some offspring that had better wings and other ones that were mating with just Nene Nui might not have had good enough wings for flying. There also used to be the giant Hawaii goose on the big island. I'm not sure if this one was related. I couldn't find too much detail about it. It was pretty big at about 20 pounds, which makes it about twice the size of an average Canada goose and about four times the size of a Nene. That one's named Bronta Ruox. The crazy thing to me about this is all of this diversity happened in less than 5 million years and really in less than just a couple million years because Kauai is the oldest Hawaiian island. It's only about 5.1 million years old. Maui 
with the partially flightless bird is only 1 million years old and the big island is only half a million years old. So in order to have a unique species that was endemic to the big island, it had to have evolved in those 500,000 years, which is crazy. Mm-hmm. And Maui with evolving a partially flightless bird in less than a million years too, because there's no other way that bird, I guess maybe it could have rafted there from somewhere, but we haven't been able to find those fossils anywhere else. So we think it evolved on Maui as a flightless bird. And it would have had to do that in less than a million years, which is so cool. It's the dinosaur specialty. Yeah. Spread out and quickly evolve to fit all the niches. <laughs> yeah. Like those Cenonathids coming yeah. over into North America and just some of them got really big, some got small, filling mm. all the gaps. Mm-hmm. It also reminds me, do you remember when we were in Hawaii and I think we were on Kauai and they were talking about how old Kauai is and look how like old and lush it's like ancient rainforest and we kept laughing because we're like, Hawaii is like the newest land on earth. What are you talking about? It's old. <laughs> yep, I remember. It's like, yeah, sure. Kauai is old for Hawaii, but compared to anywhere else on earth, it's ever maybe parts of like Iceland. It's as new as it gets. <laughs> but if you're not constantly talking about dinosaurs like us, then yeah. five million years sounds ancient. Yeah, it does. But it's not. Even though I was talking about how humans basically made a couple of these go extinct, I should point out in Life Through the Ages 2, they pointed out an example of a successful conservation story, which is Nene. So in 1951, introduced species had reduced the Nene's numbers to only about 30 individuals, which is obviously hugely problematic. But now due to lots of conservation efforts, there are estimated to be over a thousand in the wild, which still makes it one of the rarest, if not the rarest, goose. But having thousands in the wild is decent for an island. And there's also over a thousand in captivity. I think once they became really rare, they got more popular for captivity because I think in 1950, there were only like a dozen in captivity. Now there's over a thousand in captivity, which could help if we need to reintroduce them again in the future. The connection that I have to dinosaurs with this is mostly that Europe for much of the Cretaceous was basically just a series of islands with a really high sea level. And conservatively, there were at least 40 million years of things like this happening, meaning there were all these islands that were Europe and there were animals moving between these islands periodically. And if all of this evolution can happen in a half a million to a million years on just Hawaii, imagine how many crazy dinosaur evolutions were happening across Europe and between Africa and all these places with mm-hmm. isolated dinosaur groups. It must there's just got to be so much cool fossil material out there with all sorts of unique dinosaurs that we haven't found yet. They were a busy group. Oh yeah. Yeah, so I'm excited to see what new discoveries will come up next year. Still got more to talk about from this year too. That's true. <laughs> we are in a long golden age of dinosaur discoveries. Yeah, it's pretty awesome. <laughs> and that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app so you don't miss out on any new episodes. And consider joining our community, all dinosaur enthusiasts, at patreon.com slash I know dino. Thanks again, and until next time. Good day.